This podcast is a presentation of University of California Television. Like what you hear? Consider making a donation at uctv.tv slash donate so we can continue to bring you more great programs. Before we commence, we wish to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this place and all land upon which the university is located and pay our respects to the Chumash elders past, present, and future, for they hold the memories, the traditions, and the culture of this area, which has become a place of learning for people from all over the world. We are also grateful for our co-sponsors for this afternoon's panel, including the Departments of Asian American Studies, Religious Studies, and East Asian Languages and Cultural Studies, as well as the East Asia Center, the Center for Taiwan Studies, the Center for Middle East Studies, the Center for Sikh and Punjab Studies, and the Multicultural Center. The Asian American Studies Department is celebrating its 50th anniversary as being an official program since 1972, and so we're especially honored to be partnering with them for these events. Special gratitude goes to Aaron Nin and Diane Fugino, one of our panelists, who helped me prepare these events for today. Uh, we are also grateful to the Multicultural Center for hosting this panel in this wonderful space. Finally, this event takes place just a few days before the start of Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month, which begins May 1st. We hope you'll join us in celebrating AAPI Heritage Month and that you'll be inspired by today's panel and our panelists. Asian Pacific Islander American communities have a long history of activism in the United States, particularly in response to anti-Asian racism and exclusion. In their struggle for equality and liberation from oppression, AAPI activists have developed social and political movements for immigrant rights, labor rights, educational equality, affordable housing, religious freedom, environmental justice, and more. Today's panel features local and national AAPI activists who will discuss how they became activists, their work on the leading edges of activism, and how more people like you can get involved. At this time, I'd like to introduce the moderator for this panel, Naomi Joseph, who will introduce the panelists. Naomi is a PhD candidate in sociology here at UCSB, and she studies South Asian American social movements, activism, and culture and is a past co-convener of the UCSB Asian American Studies Collective and a past president of the UCSB Asian Pacific Islander Graduate Student Alliance. Naomi. Hello, everyone, and uh, thank you all so much for being here, and thank you so much to our panelists. I'm really excited for our conversation today. Uh, so I'd love to introduce um, our panelists. Um, first, on my immediate left is Diane Fugino, who is professor of the Asian American Studies Department, professor of Asian American Studies at UCSB, and co-editor-in-chief of the Journal of Asian American Studies. Uh, she has written and co-edited several books on Asian American and Black power activism, including one I see <laughs> um, uh, here on the desk. She works in communities with ethnic studies now, uh, Santa Barbara, and is designing a, cur a curriculum for an Asian American Studies high school textbook. Um, Next down the line is Manjusha Kulkarni, um, who is an ex the executive director of AAPI Equity Alliance and co-founder of Stop AAPI Hate. Her work has been featured in the New York Times, on NPR and CNN, and was recognized with the co-founders of Stop AAPI Hate, 
Cynthia Choi and Russell Jung by Time Magazine as one of the 100 most influential individuals in the world in 2021. Uh, next is Art Nelson Concordia, who is an instructional support specialist coordinating ethnic studies implementation in the Santa Barbara Unified School District. He is a leading practitioner in, in the movement to institutionalize critical authentic, and authentic ethnic studies in California public schools. Uh, this is his 23rd year in education. Wow. Um, and last but certainly not least, uh, Melissa Borja is assistant professor of American culture at the University of Michigan, where she has core faculty in Asian Pacific Islander American studies. She is a historian of migration, religion, race, and politics. She advises Princeton's Religion and Forced Migration Initiative and serves as a lead investigator of the Virulent Hate Project. Thank you so much. It's really lovely to have you all here. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so how this is going to go, the kind of basic format will include about 40 minutes of the panelists answering some prepared questions that I have for you all. Um, then about 15 minutes of conversation among you, among the panelists. And finally, one with about 25 to 30 minutes of questions from the audience. Um, so let's, uh, let's kick it off, huh? Uh, so I would love if you could all briefly tell us about how you became active in AAPI organizing and what work you were doing for AAPI communities. Uh, Diane, would you like to start? Sure. Yeah. Sure. Thank you. Yeah. And um, I, I hope that ooh, there's a lot of feedback. Well, yeah, maybe if I turn. I think go ahead, I'll, I'll pick it up. Um, I want to, I hope you'll indulge me a minute. Um, we had two giants transition yesterday. One is a national figure and one is very local and very personal to me. So we had Harry Belafonte pass, right? And he has been known to quote, to say that Paul Robeson told him, get them to sing your song and they'll want to know who you are. And for him, it wasn't just the music and the art. It was very much about activism. And for folks who know him, know that he worked in the civil rights movement and was very close with Dr. Martin Luther King. He also were, was a Pan-Africanist. And he gave, got a platform for South African singer Marion Makiba to be able to talk about apartheid to Western audiences and also worked with people like Kwame Nkrumah to think about African liberation and decolonization. And the other person who's very local, um, some people in the, in, here in this room I know know her as well, and she's very close to my family, and a Tongva elder, an artist, someone who always loved nature and was always a supporter of young people and a tender of community, and that's Gloria Liggett. And I just want to bring them both into this room um, because I recognize that the work that we do is not just our own, and it very much builds on the shoulders of past activists and past generations and their struggles. And I just want us to recognize those intergenerational connections and that it's local and it's national and it's international, the kinds of work that we're doing. Um, I'll just, since I spent so much time there, I'll just say quickly, um, I, I think I, I will say that I came to activism and Asian American activism through ethnic studies and Asian American studies when I was an undergrad. 
Um, I grew up in Monterey Park, a somewhat typical East Side Sansei, and um, lived a life that was like that, but didn't understand the legal structures, the historical structures, the political and economic structures that really shaped the development of Japanese American communities. And it was in a Japanese American history class with Yuji Ichioka, and it was in another ethnic studies course that I really transformed my vision and my views and my understanding of structural racism. And from there, I, I got into different kinds of activism and organizing. And I, I want to say that another really pivotal moment was when I came here and got to teach in Asian American studies and loosen the bounds of my disciplinary training in psychology. And I was um, wanting to study Asian American women's activism and um, heard Yuri Kochiyama speak, was encouraged to go out and interview her, and she ended up really transforming my intellectual and political and personal life. If you know her work, she ha- does did so much, worked in so many movements, a really deep solidarity person, and also somebody who kept the personal. Very, today we talk about self-care, collective care. She was doing that way before we had those terms, always thinking about the individual in the struggle that dialectic between the individual and the collective. Great, thank you. Let's see if I have... So I think there is still some feedback if there's a way to take care of that. But um, let me just start off by saying how delighted I am to be here at UCSB with all of you. And um, just want to express my gratitude to to Dusty, Diane, the CAP Center and the Multicultural Center for hosting um, the series of events today and in the coming weeks. And really an honor to be with um, all my fellow panelists. Um, for me, I would say that, um, you know, I understood race from a really early age um, because I um, I immigrated from India with my parents when I was two. And when um, I was about seven years old, we moved to Montgomery, Alabama. And so this was right um on the the heels of the civil rights movement in the 70s and 80s. And so, you know, Montgomery was still sort of grappling with what its legacy was going to be, as as is true with the whole nation. And so I'll just share with you one example which made it really clear to me that I was going to be otherized. Um, So when I was in an AP American history class, uh, in high school, uh, my teacher, who ended up being actually one of my favorites, so, you know, we had a very good relationship. She, in an effort to defend the Japanese American incarceration, asked the class of 25, um, if we were at war, the United States with India, should we intern Manju and another student? Um, and 24 out of the 25 students voted, yes, they should intern me. Um, many of them were my friends. <laughs> the one student who didn't was my African-American friend, Wanda, and I, we still talk about that um, incident together. And so um, I think that really shed light for me, not only about how I was perceived, but really what the dynamic was in sort of uh, greater America. And so 
Because I grew up in Montgomery, I had the opportunity after graduating from high school to work at the Southern Poverty Law Center um, and where I worked on an issue that's very present today, which is voter suppression. So, um, you know, even back in uh, the 90s, that was something that was happening in Alabama. Then I worked at the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Education Fund on um, issues involving actually um, many students like you all, which is the ability of undocumented students to get access to in-state tuition, which was not true, actually, at the time. And so that was something that we fought for. Um, and then lastly, um, again, this is all before my, my career really took off, was uh, working at the ACLU of Southern California on Japanese Latin American redress. And so while many folks know about Japanese American car- incarceration, I want to actually just ask for a show of hands, how many folks have heard about the incarceration of Japanese Latin Americans? A couple, so like a handful, and of course, people on the panel, I'm not surprised as you all are experts. Well, so alongside the 120,000 individuals uh, who were 60% of whom were U.S. citizens, the United States government uh, during World War II went to uh, Latin America, notably Costa Rica, Panama, Peru, Brazil, abducted several thousand individuals brought them back to the United States and put them in incarceration camps. Um, And so few people even today know this story. They were supposed to be used as essentially pawns um, in a prisoner of war exchange. And when that became politically untenable, um, what the U.S. government did actually is then deport them to um, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Right. So these were individuals who had lived for a hundred plus years as a community in Central and South America uh, because of essentially anti-Asian hate brought to the United States and then left out of the Civil Liberties Act of 1988. So they got no apology. They got no reparations. And so these were some of the things. And let me just say that it was where I cut my teeth learning from our elders, Right. Elders in our community, African-American, Latinx and uh, Asian-American and Pacific Islander about what it meant to be an activist and essentially to do the work to help our communities heal and thrive. Um, um, So I think really the roots of my actually, first off, I want to acknowledge uh, the, the panel that I, I get to be on and, and to be at this institution to, I think, really bring light to, or more light to, to this issue around um, attacks against the Asian American community. And I, I come from, I come to this, I guess, to this place from more of a uh, practitioner, uh, local organizing experience. And I think that really stems from my own growing up in 1980s Los Angeles if you can picture that context. Um, in some ways, very similar to today, but in specifically pre-gentrification Echo Park. I don't know if you're familiar with downtown Los Angeles, but many, many films were made. Um, I call it the Chicano Trilogy uh, in terms of Blood In, Blood Out, American Me, Mi Vida Loca. Like That's where this Filipino-American kid um, really, really uh, grew up. And I think... Living in that context at that time, like, 
just young people, I'll focus on young people, my, my own experience, we had to make decisions in terms of how, how we were to engage in, in the world, right, in terms of how to survive. And like, I learned how to be invisible in plain sight, if that makes any sense, right? Very, very much a kind of chameleonization of myself, which in hindsight is really harmful, like in many ways, like, and, and there, there came a point where I needed to, I decided to, to really pivot away from that. And I think that's where this whole like journey of uh, really, really developing a knowledge and love of self and, and where, where I come from to make sense of where I was and where I was going really led me to developing a criticality like, and, 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 and starting to ask questions about why things were the way they, they were uh, as, as opposed to the way I'd internalized everything and seen all of my peers internalize all of these dominant narrative systems and impact those systems on, on our lived experience. And so then that really led me to, um, it was really through the, 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 the learnings uh, about the black uh, liberation struggle um, and just how I felt invited in, in to, to that cause, like really beyond civil rights, really human rights. Um, which led me to look for the equivalent of that in my community, which led me to this to the studying of and, and wanting to engage in, in this very vibrant democracy movement in the Philippines, where I mean, it's where my folks are from, um, and and wanting to reconnect to that. Which interestingly enough, some thirty plus years ago, leads me to to first meeting that Diane, um, and all centered around really trying to figure out what it means to be free, like as an individual, as a family, as a community, as nations in this, in this shared space of our planet. Um, long story short, that leads me to ethnic studies and wanting to figure out how to create an educational experience that really begins with our, the young people in front of us and, and guiding them through those very... So those, those are very questions about systems, about humanization, dehumanization, um, with really the express purpose, you know, explicit purpose of, of, of a humanization, rehumanization of ourselves. Um, so again, really honored to be uh, at this table with, with our scholars here and in community with, with you all. Again, thank you for inviting me to be part of this conversation. So the question is, how did I get involved with activism, right? And I would give the short answer, which is, it is what the moment requires of me. But I'll give a longer answer that I think has three parts. The first has to do with history. I often say when I tell my story that I was born the spring that Vincent Chin was killed. That is true metaphorically. I, I owe a lot of my own history, my own commitment to organizing, especially in the Midwest, to growing up in the 1980s, in that period of anti-Asian racism that my family experienced. But it's also true literally. I was born in May 1982, and he was killed not long after I was born. So growing up in Michigan in the 1980s, my parents, who are immigrants from the Philippines, chose to live in, in mid-Michigan, which is a lovely place to live, except that at that time, there was a lot of anti-Asian sentiment associated with um, the auto industry and the competition with Japan. I have relatives whose 
uh, cars were spray painted with anti-Asian slogans. Um, my parents were very concerned about the, the opportunities uh, to be safe. Um, that is a big part of my story. But I would also say that a big part of my story is trying to live into my own values and acknowledging that living into my values will take different forms at different moments in history. So it is important to me to live a life that honors the inherent worth and dignity of other people. I have a theological commitment to that. I have a theological commitment to loving my neighbor and living in community. And that means different things at different times. When I was a sophomore in college and 9-11 happened, that meant leaning in to um, insisting on um, loving my Muslim neighbors and, and speaking out against the Islamophobia that I saw rampant in my community. Um, when COVID-19 happened, it meant leaning into my skills as a researcher to try to help us understand the problem of anti-Asian racism and putting it into a greater context. And I, I live in Indiana. So it's important to note that um, we've had a really dramatic um, assault on reproductive rights in Indiana and elsewhere. And so that meant that in the past year, I've been really emphasizing the experiences of Asian Pacific Islander American women and what it means in a post-Dobbs world. Uh, excuse me. So it's, it's tough. Um, and it means being flexible. And it means being an activist in ways that I never really imagined. But I also think it's really worthwhile for that reason. Thanks. Thank you all for sharing. I think one thing that's um, really interesting and kind of leads me to the next question I have is um, the ways that you've brought in not just the your own experience as someone who's AAPI, but also that inspiration that you've had from like other groups, um, the um, especially like from Black liberation movements, um, Indigenous movements, etc. So it kind of so it brings me to this question of in what ways is Asian American activism different from the work of other groups, right? And what, what do Asian American activists have to consider that um, might be a little bit different than other groups? Um, and I'm happy, you know, I think we started going down the line, but I'm happy for folks to just kind of dive in as they feel comfortable. Yeah. Well, I could start. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the greatest challenges uh, about uh, doing this work in Asian American and Pacific Islander communities is the tremendous diversity, right? I think the diversity can be, a, uh, absolutely is a positive, but it also can be a challenge where there are multiple languages and ethnicities and religions. Um, and nation states, and that we have individuals of varying socioeconomic backgrounds and um, who also represent, you know, the queer communities, uh, as well as um, the, um, you know, a multitude of different communities. And I think what we need to remember is, as we do this activism within the diverse communities is that Asian American itself or Asian American and Pacific Islander is really an aspirational term, right? It's not one especially that new immigrants even adhere to or accept, right? Many people just say, hey, you know, I'm Filipino or I am South Asian or Indian or I am um, Korean American or Hmong. So, so that's, I think, one part of that challenge is understanding, like, how do we come together? Um, and what's important to me is a, a quote by Ta-Nehisi Coates, which is remembering that, like, racism is the father of race. And so that's why we do this organizing by race, 
right? Which is that we are trying to gain political power. And given that all of our numbers individually are relatively small, we amass any power by being together, right? So 24 million of us together are Asian American and Pacific Islander, but each individual community is small and especially in certain parts of the country, really sort of minuscule, right? So if we are going to fight racism, we've got to actually bring race back into the picture in terms of um, when we think of building the power. And I think when we look at the lessons of African-American and Latinx communities, that is one of the ways in which they've been able to bring political power to bear is by coming together um, on that level, but also knowing and understanding that there are going to be differences of, of opinion, and especially where you have that diversity, right? Um, there are going to be differences in what the policy goals are of any particular group. So we see that now sometimes with Chinese-American conservatives who are against affirmative action, right? Or we see that with individuals in the PI community who uh, are perhaps for um, police abolition, right? Uh, and, and so there may not be agreement across the board, but we have to see like, where can we come together to bring the power of 24 million people in a place where we can exert it and achieve some level of success? I'd love to build on that. I, I, I've only lived in Indiana for three years. And one thing that's very interesting to me um, and I should preface this by saying I, I lived for in in California for four years. I lived in New York City for ten years, and I, I'm born and raised in Michigan. So lived in lots of different places. But um, as an activist in Indiana, I, I have been surprised by the degree to which people are resistant to even using the word Asian American to describe themselves. So I've been doing a lot of work in Indianapolis trying to engage the Chin community that lives on the south side of the city, and they hadn't even really thought about organizing alongside the Korean American community and the Chinese American community that lives in different sections of the, the city. And so there's a lot of conversation that has to happen, conversation that bridges religious differences, ethnic differences, language differences, class differences, generational differences. It's a lot. Um, but it, I think the biggest challenge is encouraging to people, encouraging people to think in coalition and to identify and share shared interests. I would say one other thing that makes it challenging in Indiana is um, more so in Indiana than in any other place I've lived, Asian Americans are very invisible. So one very obvious example is if you look at state advisory commissions that exist in Indiana, there's one for Latinos, there's one for women, there's one for Native Americans, there isn't one for Asian Americans. It's like we don't even exist. So my community organization, the National Asian Pacific American Women's Forum, has been pushing for the creation of one. But it's really interesting to me that it never occurred to anyone to include Asian Americans as a group that needs to have some sort of representation in that form. One thing I think is really interesting about what you're, all, you're both saying is, um, I mean, that the AAPI community has this diversity and there's that challenge of bringing together shared interests. But um, without having, I mean, but I think that I can also hear in what you're saying, the kind of challenge of bringing in 
of really understanding what those shared interests are, given that they're coming from value systems that are very different. Also, I'm thinking about like the rise of like the emerging conversations about casteism among the South Asian community. Um, I'm thinking about, you know, we're talking about, um, you know, the rise of the right and in Asian American communities as well. So there's, there's a um, both a political power in coming together, but also a continual need to understand like what those shared interests and values are too. Right. So, um, yep. So I'm just hearing that. Yeah, please. Yeah. I wanted to add a historical context to this conversation. And the question is, right, what, in what ways is Asian American activism different than say black or Chicano, Chicano, Latinx or other kinds of activism? And, you know, I would say one of the things is that and racism against black communities and Latinx communities and others is legible. And until the very recent moment, racism against Asian Americans was not really legible. And it really was the pandemic moment and the post-Atlanta moment, right, two, two years ago, that this became something that became visible in the mainstream. And I think one of the tropes around Asian America, right, our representation is indivisibility, as well as other types of hypervisibility, like in ways the sexualization of Asian American women and things like that. And so part of this invisibility of anti-Asian racism and anti-Asian violence has to do with something that people within Asian American studies talk about widely, right? The model minority trope. People can say, oh, you talk about that too much. And on one hand, yes. And on the other hand, it remains the dominant racialization of Asian Americans and something that we need to be working against. So the activists that I study and the activists that I work with are very much making a deliberate, um, their, their work is committed to opposing, to rejecting the model minority image and idea. And I want to put that in a historic context. And really, it's the early Cold War, right? I study Japanese-American activism and history. And it's this pretty surprising moment in with, right, during World War II, Japanese-Americans, my parents, my grandparents, you know, the West Coast Japanese-Americans were put into concentration camps, right, and deemed the enemy. And immediately following the close of World War II, within a year or two, 1946, 1947, there were efforts already to turn Japanese Americans into model citizens. Um, and so we, one of the questions is why? Why at that moment? Another question is how? And I don't have time to get into all of it, but I at least want to touch on the why question and put that within a, a global context. And one of the things that's happening at this moment is that the U.S. rises to become the dominant world power. And at that moment, um, it has investments to show that racism is decreasing in the United States, right? It wants to show that it's different than European colonialism, even as itself has imperial aspirations. And so it's productive to show a decline in anti-Asian racism. And there are some structural things that happen for Asian Americans being allowed into the suburbs, um, being allowed... uh, to, to get jobs that were equivalent to college education, where pre-World War II Japanese Americans were completely shut out of those types of positions. Um, but I think we have to understand that context and, and how that related to and helped to fuel U.S. foreign policy, in expansionist policy in Asia and the Pacific region. And then I just want to make one more comment, which is that 1966 is another really important moment in the popularization of the model minority. And it's that, that year that the model minority is highlighted in two popular news magazines, right? The U.S. World and News Report and the New York Times Magazine. 
deeming Chinese Americans and Japanese Americans as these success stories. And what else happens, right? As we're talking about kind of comparative social movements, that's the year in which the black struggle turns to black power. It happens before that, right? As I teach in my classes, but that moment is when Stokely Carmichael makes the call for black power and the Black Panther Party is formed. So the model minority is also used to discipline black radicalism and black militancy. So I think that I'll I'll probably say more in, in, in my talk, in my comments throughout the ways that Asian Americans have really been in alliance with black power. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it, it leads me to kind of the next question I have, which is, um, and I'm, I think just in the interest of time, I'm going to combine two questions as a little bit. But we've talked a little bit about some of the things that we can learn from past Asian American activism and struggles. Um, but I'm interested also in like, okay, what do we, t- what principles do we draw from um, as we struggle for liberatory f- futures? What um, and what pitfalls should we avoid too? Right. Um, as we're thinking about the future of Asian American activism, how can we take those lessons of the past, take um, and that kind of understanding of the relationships, especially between Asian American activism and say black liberation and, um, you know, fights for Latinx activism and, um, you know, the understanding of settler colonialism, which we've kind of started to talk about a little bit. Um, how can we learn from these past struggles and bring them, um, bring those principles forward? Um, I'll jump in. So I, I think what, what's really exciting about developing ethnic studies for, for K-12 students mm-hmm. is the opportunity to teach these histories, these connections, and really uh, grounding our understanding of, of history from the perspective of Asians and Asians American, and Asians and Asian Americans um, around the principle of solidarity and what it means to have each other's back, what it means to show up for each other what it means in the context and communities that we, we live in, what it means to, to coexist and to, and to re- relate with, have disagreement, but then also see some larger unity in, in our humanity. And that I think if we, if we did a class analysis on, Asian, on Asians in America, Asian Americans, I think we, we still are very much a, a working class um, community that is really struggling within this, this economic system and that our, our presence in, our, in this country really stems from uh, uh, global capitalism and, and, and occupation and uh, really the destabilizations of many of the, the, the homelands that um, our families come from. And I think, again, like creating uh, and really guiding young people to ask the questions of, of, of the why and the how and then the larger purpose of what it means to um, be in this country, what it means to be an American, what it means to be a hyphenated American, um, the challenges that we go through, and, and, and understanding the relationships um, between, and the commonalities, really, between that, the struggles in our communities to these larger dominant systems. So teaching to, to systems, right, the economic system, these, these dominant social cultural systems uh, that really are shaping um, uh, our understandings, our misunderstandings about why the world is the way the world is. And I think it's super exciting to be able to engage young people because they're hungry. They're hungry to, 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 to know and, and, to equip, and to be equipped with some, some critical way of engaging in their world. Um, so I think 
to, to the point about invisibility and, and mm -hmm. making our communities much more, to, 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 you know, broadly visible, I think it is, there's a huge opportunity in, in building these learnings and teachings um, to, to the youngest of our, our communities mm -hmm. uh, through ethnic studies. Um, and beyond just a, an identity, a superficial identity politics, mm -hmm. but, but rooted in, in who we are from where we come and how we got here and how we are doing. Too many of us are not doing well. And I think, again, if, if we don't have the criticality, we end up internalizing these things. Mm -hmm. And then in, the, in, in those desperate moments, and I think it, this, is, this is so in many working, in all working communities uh, in this country, when we don't have clarity of, of why things are, are going sideways, we tend to blame the, the person across the street who, who may have a different religion, a different phenotype, a different um, ancestral origin. And I think there's a huge urgency and opportunity to teach directly to, to demystify um, and clarify uh, things. Mm. If I could build on that and, and also what Diane said, which is, you know, the, the model minority framing and mythology um, is, you know, dangerous for multiple reasons. And we know, you know, that it creates a very significant wedge within with between us and African-American communities. But the other thing that it does, too, is unfortunately too many people in our communities wear it as a badge of honor. And... Um, we have to be honest that there are members of our community who mm -hmm. believe that they benefit from white supremacy and white adjacency, mm -hmm. right? And so we have to be able to call that out and say, you know, and that's what you're seeing right now in the affirmative action case at Harvard mm -hmm. is people who buy into that system and want to benefit from it. Um, and... With anti-Asian hate, which is, you know, something we've been working on at Stop API Hate, we see the same thing, which is we see um, because it's been framed by white stream or mainstream media as be involving hate crimes, what then becomes the answer to hate crimes? More policing, mm -hmm. right? And who does policing benefit, right? So... So that's a place where then you need to really interrogate the anti-blackness that our communities hold, right? And then the solutions that they then seek as a result of their believing in white supremacy, that they're seeking white adjacency, and then they think, okay, yes, let's call for more policing because that will keep us safe. But we know from all of our struggles and especially... Um, what our members of our community who are, um, you know, working class and low income, that those are absolutely not the answers, right? And we also know, as I, you know, mentioned before from um, PI sisters and brothers that, you know, dark complexion and, and brown Asians, which I consider myself one, um, means a different thing in terms of policing, right? And it, uh, it results in different actions being taken within our community against us. So I think it's really, this is an opportunity uh, when we talk about learning from pitfalls is to really interrogate 
what many in our community believe and to and to fight it so that we really are, are talking about sort of universal liberation. Can I? Yeah. I'm so glad you brought up this issue of hate crimes and the um, sort of following from that, uh, a focus on carceral state solutions. So over the past few months, I've been deeply involved in responding to the racist stabbing of a IU student in Bloomington um, that occurred in, in January. It's a very clearly racially motivated attack. People were very upset by this incident, understandably. And then there were lots of calls subsequent to that attack for policing, for focusing on hate crimes responses. Um, actually, just this week, uh, federal officials said that they were pursuing hate crimes charges against the, the uh, assailant. But uh, my organization has been really insisting on not framing the issue as a hate crimes issue, but really as an anti-Asian racism issue. Mm -hmm. um, and that has involved trying to educate the community to think about the attack, not just as a hate crime, but as part of a broader conversation about how Asian and Asian American people are racialized and, and perceived as a threat. And one thing that has become very clear in our efforts after January is that we need to continue to talk to people within our communities who haven't really thought about these issues in this way. In other words, we can't write anyone off. We have to do the hard work of talking with conservatives in our own community, with people in our own community who disagree with us. Um, it, a lot of meaningful activism is really about talking to people and developing relationships and trying to um, help people see an issue in a new way. And so I, I think that that is one lesson I am learning from the past is when I hear about activists taking time to talk to other people and build their base and doing mm -hmm. meaningful political education. I'm remembering that's what we got to do right now more than ever. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to segue right from you, Melissa. <laughs> so, um, you know, one of the pitfalls that I'm thinking about is um, taking shortcuts to what activism and organizing are. Mm -hmm. And activism, some people think about it as more short-term or maybe one-off things like signing a petition, showing up at a demonstration, whereas organizing is more of the long or medium-haul work of of figuring out strategically how we create change. It is really, really hard work. Um, how do we work within institutions? Some people reject the institution because they get co-opted so easily. And I know I struggle with this at the university. And yet there are also resources at the university and people, right? And things that are happening um, that we that I don't think we want to forego. But it's a real challenge with how we work within institutions and try to challenge them. But um, one of those shortcuts, I think, is about um, not, not engaging in that kind of organizing, that kind of thinking about how we create change and the work that, that others here are, are doing. And I want to quote Harvey Dong, who was a member of the Asian American Political Alliance. This is a group that forms in May of 68 in Berkeley and is the group that coins the term Asian American as a political term, as a pan-Asian term, and as a, some of us study, and if you read their documents and study what they did, as a third worldist term. It was in, it, it, about being Asian, it was about being kind of in solidarity, always at the same time. And what Harvey Dong says is that we need to listen, unite with, and learn from the people. And that this is what APA did. It, it, 
it was organizing on campus, but it immediately started working in the community. And when Berkeley's Asian American Studies formed, they established a field office in the International Hotel in San Francisco's Chinatown because they felt like it was important for students not just to learn on campus, um, whether in classrooms or even outside classrooms, right, through organizing, but in the community. And so people started working at the International Hotel during its eviction, right? Uh, that's a really powerful history, if you don't know it, um, with Manong or Filipino elders and Chinese elders. And you had intergenerational learning of past struggles and past, uh, past, past um, uh, uh, lived experiences. And the students took these field studies classes and did things like renovated the I-Hotel through those classes. They also did research, spatial research into Chinatown to see where the recreational spaces were because they found that there were actually very few recreational spaces in really densely populated Chinatowns. And from there, they were making proposals to get more recreational spaces for young people in in what we would call green spaces today. Um, And I I just want to say that Harvey Dong also talks about and borrows from Paulo Freire's, right, pedagogy of the oppressed, the problem-solving, problem-posing kinds of ways in which we don't fix problems with those at the top giving solutions, but that people coming together in collective ways and talking about the problems and figuring it out collectively. And that is what the Asian American Political Alliance was doing. And I would say that's a characteristic of Asian American organizing to this day. I mean, there's not one way, but more or less. And so I think that these kind of community-centered pedagogies of organizing is one of the lessons that we get from the Asian American movement and Asian American activism ongoing and is an antidote to some of the pitfalls that we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think one thing that's interesting about what you've all been saying, I mean, kind of, um, I'm interested in this kind of question of Mm. institutionalization that you said earlier in the talks too, because there's this um, kind of constant tension of like, what is the long-term change look like? Mm-hmm. And for some, it's about institutional change and some mm-hmm. of it's about, or institutional integration or institutional co-optation. And then sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between those things. Uh, so I'm interested, especially um, since I know you, Diana, and you are, Nestlin are really are working on ethnic studies here in, in the Santa Barbara School District. Like, you know, how, how do you deal with this question of, um, because you're working in an institution, of a unified school district, Um, you know, how how do you, how do you both, how do you, and I mean, all of you have worked in institutions in some way or the other, obviously, we all do, but I'm kind of especially, but I'm interested in how you kind of um, deal with that tension. Uh, I think for sure, if I can just speak to Santa Barbara, but Mm -hmm. even in speaking to my work in Santa Barbara, it can't be disconnected from my work uh, statewide and now nationally. Mm -hmm. Uh, I got to be a part of, I was one of the, the, one of three writers to write this ethnic studies model curriculum for the state of California. And I think it, it speaks to the heart of the tension uh, between bringing in a transformative educational project into a hegemonic institution, right? Uh, and so the whole process was facilitated by the CDE. And it's fine, there's some good people over there. But once it went to um, public comment, the whole, the whole thing just became a shit show. <laughs> and so much of the work that, you know, there was a collection of, of I, would, I would say, the state's leading practitioners and scholars, or many of the state's leading um, ethnic studies scholars and practitioners, 
um, that I, along with a, a black scholar and a, a Chicano scholar, um, we would take their input, synthesize it, and we, we came up with a draft. We had essentially three meetings to work from. And we knew it was not perfect, but it was a good start. But how it got presented and then the reaction that, that ensued um, r really created this, I mean, this, this question was 100% in front of us. Can, can we institutionalize mm -hmm. ethnic studies in fidelity to the field? And immediately the answer was no. But then we realized, like, hold up, we got, we got some, some of what we wanted in that draft. And so then it reminded us of it needs to always be both and mm -hmm. so work within the institution and stay grounded in, in the grassroots and the communities where this, this initiative really uh, emanates from, the demands for, for an education that reflects um, our, the, the lived experiences, the aspirations, the struggles, the worldviews, the knowledges of community, racialized communities of color in the United States. Um, it needs to be spread. It needs to be developed. It needs to be taught broadly. And so we can't give up, even as, as, as you know, forces of reaction really push the institution to, to, to uh, undermine our work. Mm -hmm. um, I think in Santa Barbara and local districts throughout the state, there is so much community support. And that's really the only reason why I believe I can do this work. It's because, you know, like, I'm flanked by really organized and vocal and committed mm -hmm. community. Santa Barbara community, um, and so, and the other the other reason that the, the work happens and can continue to happen is across the board. Um, our students overwhelmingly are lo loving their experience mm. in our mm. ethnic studies uh, classes. So I think it it goes. Uh, um, a far way in, in pushing back, really effectively pushing back against all of these allegations of we're, brain, we're brainwashing children, we're indoctrinating children, we're, you know, like, mm -hmm. I mean, I think young people can speak for themselves, and they are, um, and they continue to the, appreciate and demand um, ethnic studies in, in our district, mm -hmm. and I think broadly throughout the state. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, so we have a few minutes that um, for us to I mean, we kind of designate this time as like conversation among the panelists. So I'm curious about whether you have questions for each other that you want to ask or okay. <laughs> time's like, yes, immediately. Yes. <laughs> Go for it. I actually have a question for you, Manju. Um, yes. You know, of course, the Stop AAPI Hate campaign and the movement is such an important one, right, to aggregate the data, to bring attention to this. And I know that the work that you do. Um, goes beyond aggregating data, but just trying to build community and change narratives. And I'm wondering, you know, you mentioned the, the use of the term hate, right? You, Melissa, talked about some of the problems with it, right? Which is that, um, one, it individualizes bigotry, right? And conceals structural problems. And two, it, does, it has been used to call for carceral responses, right? And so I'm wondering what your, I mean, I, I'm sort of feeling like we, not just your organization, but like we as a community need to rethink the terms that we use, right? And maybe get some new vocabulary. But I'm wondering what you're thinking about. 
this? No, that's a great question, and I think for us,、um, and and we very much are pursuing non-carceral approaches. Let me just say that, and we actually use data to do that, which is that. Of the、um, and if I may put a plug in for the five o'clock session, I'll go into some <laughs> detail、um, about that. But、um, of the eleven thousand incidents、um, that we received in in the first two years and and that we were able to analyze, about eighty five to ninety percent don't involve crimes whatsoever,、mm-hmm. right? So a vast majority are hate incidents and not hate crimes. So when、mm-hmm. I Choose data-driven policy work. It's very easy for me to look at that and say, "Hey, most of these are not crimes, so we need solutions outside of mass incarceration." Of course, by principle, I'm against it anyway.、Um, but I, the, I can see that the data shows me what is the right path moving forward. So for us, we look at civil rights, we look at education equity, which Art mentioned, and then also community safety. Broadly speaking, right? So, what does it mean to have civil rights enforcement so that we can fight workplace discrimination, bullying? That we can fight,、um, you know, what happens within educational institutions、uh, in terms of discrimination, housing. What does community safety really mean, right? Like affordable housing, living wage jobs, things like that.、Mm-hmm. Um, and I think for us, though, what we are sort of trying to pivot to is,、um, and in fact, one of the takeaways I will talk about at five is that for us,、um, anti-Asian hate has always largely been about institutional discrimination and racism. Uh, and you know, when I think of it that way, anti-Asian hate is as American as apple pie, right? When we look from the 1700s to now, right? To me, it is has never really been about the interpersonal piece. That is a very, very small segment. And when we think of solutions, right? Part of the reason too that a carceral approach doesn't work. Is it focus on is on the individual and it essentially goes backwards. So it says, "Hey, you person, you did X, so we're going to punish you." When we look at the numbers and we see that there are institutions. So, for example, we know that ride-hailing services from our data engage in racist acts. Drivers choose not to pick up. Asian American clients, they've set, made racist remarks against Asian American clients. So then we could say, hey, how about the Civil Rights Department of California bringing、um, actions against those institutions? And as a former civil rights attorney, I will tell you, those are forward-facing, right? You have training of employees, you have financial penalties that make those institutions think twice about whether they want to discriminate in the future. Right, so they bring about what we want in terms of societal change, and let me just say one other thing on the hate crimes and the carceral approach piece. There is not a single study that shows evidence of the efficacy of hate crimes prosecution in preventing hate. Not one study. 
If anybody finds one, please share it. But we've done the literature review. There's not a single study. So that's another reason, right? When we are data driven, when we look at evidence, we look at the literature. It's important for us to know and understand. This is about changing policy. This is about institutionalizing equity. Can I ask a question or, or make a comment, kind of related to that? I, I've been thinking about the the conversation about hate and the, the language of hate versus racism for for a while. Um, and in my own research, even though my research project is called the Virulent Hate Project, because I thought it was catchy. Uh, <laughs> in the reports we used and released, we we use the language of racism. We very intentionally use it, the language of racism, and we focus not just on individual acts of violence, harassment, and discrimination, but also stigmatizing rhetoric deployed by people in, in office. Um, and that has been, it's been helpful for us to discuss these issues and these incidents in terms of racism um, rather than hate, because I, I think it draws a, a bigger picture. But I, I'm wondering, and this is arising from my own conversations with members of the community in Indiana, if part of the problem is that Asian Americans might not want to describe themselves as experiencing racism, because they might not want to admit that they are a racialized group. Um, and I say this, and I hope my dad is not watching this, it's streaming from YouTube, um, but I say this because I, I think it honestly took my own parents who, who migrated to the US in the 70s, about 20 years to realize that even though they are good Americans, they're sons in the military, their kids do well in school, they might still experience racism. They're not actually white people. Um, and it was actually Frank Wu's book, Yellow, that caused my dad to think about his racial positioning differently. Mm -hmm. And it got to the point where he realized he's not a white man mm -hmm. and he would carry the, the book in his bag and use it as a prop. So when a grocery store clerk would say something that he considered to be anti-Asian and racist, he'd pull out the book and he'd say, you're treating me like I'm yellow, um, which was true. But he's also a dramatic guy and liked to use the book in a, in a dramatic way. But I, I say all this just to, to say part of the challenge is, again, helping members of our own community think about their racial position, think about how they might have more in common with other people of color um, because of the uh, the nature of white supremacy in the U.S. Um, on that note, or just what I th I'm realizing, it's about four or five. So I think we have around 25 minutes-ish for audience Q&A. So maybe as the conversation is going, if folks from the audience want to join in for Q&A, I think what we're doing is we're, we'll ask you to come up to the mic up here. Um, so we'll just ask that just for the sake of time so that we can get as many questions in as possible to just keep your questions brief. Um, try and wait for the, for the microphone to free up. I think it's both microphones, is that right? Yeah, great. Um, and um, so we'll use the microphone so that folks on, um, online can also hear you. Um, and then please speak directly into the microphone so that the audio can be heard by our live stream audiences. So like, get up in there into the mic. <laughs> So feel free to, um, I mean, we can continue this conversation, but if you have a question, feel free to come up to the mic. Great. Well, and if I might respond, um, yeah. you know, I think, uh, Melissa, you made a really important point about, um, you know, what it means to think about this as like hate versus racism. And, you know, 
in in my Asian American studies classes um, at UCLA, you know, what I really start by, you know, what I introduce the students to is even right the concept of Asia, right? And what we're trying to do is use it as a unifying piece, but like the idea was as a juxtaposition, right, to Europe. And I think back to, you know, if I can explain a little bit more that quote that I used by Ta-Nehisi Coates, when we look at racism um, and the origins of race, right, it really was when we began to see the... Um, the global slavery trade and industry and the, the genocide that we saw across North and South America, parts of uh, Asia and Africa, especially as it pertains to sort of the European conquest, right, of these countries. And so I think what is hard then is because folks in our communities don't want to think of themselves, right, as being, they don't want to think of themselves as being racialized because they don't want to think of themselves. Race really means sort of inferiority, right? And that conversation is about inferiority. I think for us, I mean, we started in the same way you did, like, how do we call this, right? Like what was happening and early on, there were these acts of, individual racism, right? Where, um, and for us at Stop AAPI Hate, it was about a child in a middle school in Los Angeles who was approached by another child February of 2020 before there was a single confirmed case of COVID. Uh, and the white child approached um, this child and said, hey, you're a COVID carrier, go back to China. And uh, the child said, you know, reflexively, I'm not Chinese, right? Because he was like, I can't go back because I'm not Chinese. And when he said that, the the white child punched him in the face and had 20 times, right? And so we knew that something was going on because here, right, there was no confirmed case of COVID um, in Southern California. I think there were a couple cases sort of in Seattle, that area in February. But we, we sense that if a 12-year-old child can hold this level of thinking, right? Something's going on. And and certainly the first several hundred incidents that we got were about interpersonal violence, right? Uh, and discrimination. But then now as we've begun to look at it, really seeing the impacts, and I want to say, especially now in 2023, that what hate looks like is racist rhetoric and leading to policies, right? And we know if you know anything about Asian American history, that's the way it works, right? So you've got the 1917 Immigration Act, the Asiatic Bar Zone Act, when you had groups of whites who said, hey, there are too many of these folks, right? That happened, of course, with the Chinese Exclusion Act as well in the 1800s. And so now what we're seeing, and we should be very careful about, there are now alien land law bills that have been introduced in multiple states. So as part of what I would characterize as the slow road to fascism, we are now seeing again, Texas, Montana, Virginia, Georgia are all introducing legislation that will make it illegal for Chinese nationals to purchase land, right? 
So that means that my parents, for example, if you were to broaden this out to other communities, my parents were immigrants when they bought their first house. That would, under these laws, be illegal if they were Chinese American. But we know that Chinese is just the first, right? It's the first marker. Then it becomes Indian. It becomes Filipino. It becomes uh, Korean. So I think we need to be really aware of the ways in which hate. Uh, I think there's a very clear through line, both in the past as well as in the pu- uh, present and in the future, that hate is about institutional racism against our communities. Yeah. I think uh, I'm not seeing anybody from the audience, so I, I'm, I'm going to just yeah, please. Oh yeah, I'll, go ahead, please. Shall I stand here? Yeah. Go for it. Hello. Um, I guess uh, now I'm so close. Now I'm a little <laughs> nervous. Um, I guess one of something that I was thinking about, especially as you discuss solidarity, as well as like what makes Asian American activism unique is, for example, I'm indigenous Yolka and Filipino. And I know increasingly the Asian American community is increasingly Mm multi-ethnic. And so I guess I'm wondering where that piece comes in because I feel like a lot of Asian activism is like surrounded by nation state, like or connection to nation state. Mm -hmm. For example, like the first question I get from Filipino people is like, do you speak Tagalog? I'm like, no. Um, (laughs) And so this idea of like being really tied to like, the nation state. Um, so I feel like almost being multi-ethnic puts a, puts a wedge in that. So I guess just mm-hmm. what are, what is the panel's thoughts on the place mm-hmm. of multi-ethnic Asian Americans in activism? Mm-hmm. Um, I'll say something to this. I think that this is really important when Manju, you were saying, you know, the different, the ways that dark-skinned Asians versus light-skinned Asians get treated, right? I'm thinking, well, you know, people think of Asians as, I don't know, mono-ethnic or mono-racial or something, but, right, we have Afro-Asians, we have Asian-Latino. I mean, th- there is this multiraciality that's happening. And I think that that type of hybridity forces us to think more complexly in, in multiple ways, right? We also have intersectionality, so it isn't just about race and ethnicity. Um, and I think that this is uh, something that, well, any group that's thinking this way can help us to guard against some of the pitfalls that Art Nelson was talking about with narrow identity politics. And I will say that when we talk, that question about the pitfalls, I feel like, who, especially after George Floyd, I saw a lot of things happen around narrow identity politics and in really problematic ways that led to cancel culture when people didn't do something mechanical, like they didn't do a land acknowledgement and then they would be seen as anti-Indigenous, even though people didn't even know anything about that person's history, their relationship to Native peoples, the long histories of work they did. It may have been a Native person who said, we don't want you to do a land acknowledgement because it's becoming so performa, right, so mechanical. So there's ways that we really need to think deeply and not and move away from identity politics. And I think this multiraciality, the intersectionality, the connections, the ways that we don't fit narrowly in a box 
enables us to think more uh, more away from identity politics and more towards the kinds of politics that we are what, what is it that we're fighting against what is it that we're fighting for right so if we see racial capitalism as undergirding and imperialism as as the Asian American movement many of those activists did undergirding many of our problems right the institutionalized racism then those kinds of systems of oppression can unite us and i think the multiraciality helps to move us a little closer or questions that or destabilizes the the supposed stability of identity politics mm-hmm. i wanted to make one really small point um and i agree 100% with the the point that was made um and what diane just said what i think is especially tricky for asian american communities and i'll put pacific islander communities aside for a second is that we are still largely an immigrant community and that there is regularly an influx of new immigrants and i can say for my own community south asian which now by the way I think Indian Americans are the largest subgroup within the Asian American community. So that just happened in I think the last couple of weeks. One thing that um is challenging for us and I've worked in South Asian spaces quite a bit is you know we feel like we've learned some lessons and we're trying to show allyship, we're trying to be part of the broader Asian American community, but what happens is every year a bunch of new people come and they very much believe in the nation state right they are um homophobic in some regards they are like they believe sort of things that we we no longer agree to right um as progressive communities and so it is very much a challenge because it's like what do we do when we're trying to develop norms and then those norms um face this challenge of an influ- regular influx of new people who don't agree to our norms. Mm-hmm. Right. I just want to say one thing that I think is interesting and hard to the kind of points that you all have made earlier. I just want to bring back up this question of like identity versus shared interests and values, mm-hmm. right? Um and there's two things I want to say about that. One is when we're thinking about like the new inf- the continual influx of folks coming into the US, um i mean as someone who's south asian also and i think about this a lot um especially like questions about homophobia and i think i think we have to think about like why fo- like the the systems that are bringing people to the us in the first place especially among south asians right like mm-hmm. the immigration policies that bring south asians to the us are very targeted right and they're targeted towards professionals who and of course they subscribe to the nation state because they spent a lot of time I mean they had to because in the sense of like the amount of even if they didn't maybe like morally subscribe to a nation state they did have to submit a lot of paperwork and the nation state imprinted onto them whether or not they want to believe in the nation state right they have to like go through all these like nation state related processes you know the kind of machinery of the nation state to come here and that machinery especially for south Asians uh filter like filters a particular group of people right i'm talking about like things like the h1b mm-hmm. um system mm-hmm. that will that focuses on mm-hmm. professionals mm-hmm. right it's not it's it's specifically excluding working class people 
right? And there's also then like a particular type of politics of what does it mean to be a professional, mm-hmm. which having like a, a a like queer aesthetic, for example, is not that seen as like always seen as professional. So I just kind of want to bring that in there too of like um, it is not it is not hap- like to kind of build on your point. It's not happenstance that this is a group of people who are you know not subscribing to a particular type of politics. They were I think a lot of the systems filter in people who to, who subscribe to one type of politics and not another. Um, and also then makes it harder for folks, the queer folks in India, for example, who, um, so who are, who are a large group, like, you know, South Asians have been querying gender identities for, for centuries. <laughs> so anyway, I just kind of want to bring that sort of complication in there. Anyway, um, other, do other folks have things they want to say about this? I, I think, to the, to the point in terms of who, who gets to come to this country, um, yeah. who's invited. Um, I think for, for Filipinos, they, uh, my, my dad's in the Navy, so, so there's a dozen of my uncles, and my, my mom's a nurse, so dozens of my aunts. Yeah. And oh, is your family my family? And I think two points con- connecting to, to the question about um, multi-ethnic uh, identity within the, within all of us, really, right? And then the roles that we are invited to participate in, in the American economy. And I think it really is needs-based. Um, there was a time uh, they needed cooks in the Navy, and tens of thousands of, of, mm-hmm. of Filipinos were recruited to, be, to fill that role. And in, in the medical field, we, we needed hundreds of thousands of, of folks to, to, to care for uh, people in the United States. Um, and so they, they got the, the opportunity to come. Uh, I really want to focus in on, in terms of organizing uh, and connecting that to, to how we go about really developing larger mass movement around um, common struggle, common experience, mm-hmm. challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, like I, I organized my parents and I, I would just guide them through this line of questioning in terms of why are you a nurse? I want to help people. Mm-hmm. Um, why did you have to come to the United States to do that? Because life mm-hmm. is really impossible to live mm-hmm. in in the Philippines. Well, why was it so tough? Mm-hmm. And then all that all leads back to colonialism mm-hmm. and occupation mm-hmm. and dispossession and guiding mm-hmm. them to really revisit uh, their, you know, that mm-hmm. uh, Filipinos are very, very Catholic. Um, it's relatively a re- recent thing, in mean, 500 years. Um, and, and I, you know, it's, it can be very challenging um, uh, engaging them in this line of questioning, but ultimately, like, they're good people. Like, they value uh, life and humanity and, and, and their neighbors and community and, um, um, mutual respect, like this, the, the the list of values that I think we share in common with with other communities is long, mm-hmm. and I think just really hammering in on these points in terms of why couldn't you stay in your country and and, all, and the history involved and all of the systems involved in, in really dispossessing and displacing Filipinos from the archipelago, even the name of our country, it's like mm-hmm. named after a fifteen year old white mm-hmm. kid, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, so, and so I think. That it's really unsettling for them, and then it be, it, it starts to again like, open them up, and because of our relationship, and we're so close, 
um, that allows them to, 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 to consider these things. And I think that process, while I don't think there's a playbook for liberation, there are guidelines. I, there, there are, I think, some lessons that we can learn from our own Asian American activist experience, um, drawing from that and engaging people, like very thoughtfully, very um, critically, and, and I think very patiently. Um, the, these are all lessons from, from Asian American politics and, and activism um, that I think relate to that, sorry, the, the point in terms of, I, I get to be a part of this really significant project where we are equipping young people to really engage in development of knowledge and love of self. And, and that's mm -hmm. ultimately the basis for mutual res, re, recognition and respect, which mm -hmm. is the basis for solidarity, which is the basis for, I think, any meaningful, meaningful change uh, and challenge to mm -hmm. systems of, of dehumanization. So um, like, there's so much more to, to, to discuss and to engage in, but I think, again, being here in this community with this audience, uh, I imagine like, like folks are trying to figure out the same questions, right, and how we're all connected, um, and how we can become closer. Um, it's a huge opportunity. You know? and I don't know if there's any answers <laughs> responding to the prompt, but um, anyway, I'll, I'll just stop for now. Go ahead. I don't see if we have, we have, oh, we have a couple of questions in the audience. Okay. Um, I think if you want to line up near the microphone, okay. Well, the microphone's coming to you. That's better. Yeah. Great. Hello. Okay. Cool. Um, so I don't really know how to form the question, but I was interested in the model minority and where it kind of like got instigated. Um, one of you mentioned that uh, Asian American communities are inherently working class and that seems like a kind of a contradiction and is it perpetuated by uh, Asian Americans themselves or is it by by the the um, the by outside for by other by like white supremacy and these sort of things to to as you mentioned earlier, to I don't know how to put it clearly, but like to put down the black community, like where it's confusing where it comes from, and it has affected me, um, and has put like pressure in like, and it has um, affected the trajectory of where I've gone. Um, so I was just wondering about that. So I mean, this is an important question. Thank you, thank you for that. Um, because I think that one way to think about the model minority, which I think is probably the most common way to think about this, is sort of looking at demographics, right? What, what is your education level? What is your income level? And as if that's the only way to think about this. But there's a narrative and a message in it. And at the moment that the model minority begins to emerge, for at that time it was mostly Chinese and Japanese Americans in the country, it was like I said, the late 40s, the early 50s. And so demographically, we weren't, we, we were, uh, you know, it wasn't that there was rising um, incomes and this kind of thing. And so it really was connected to U.S. geopolitics to serve certain kinds of, you know, to, to show that there was a reduction in anti-Asian racism, um, to show that you don't need activism at that time when, uh, around the world, countries were fighting against colonialization and the um, civil rights movement was emerging in this country and to show that you don't need 
activism. What you need is just education and hard work, which I believe in, but I don't think that invalidates a need for activism, right? So I think that, um, that, that we need to think about what, what this is doing and do we look at it only through demographics, which is important. I mean, you know, folks have been talking about how we need to understand uh, differences within Asian America, right? But also what the, what the narrative is, what it does, what kind of messages it talks about activism and about disciplining other groups. Um, and of course, the damage it does to Asian Americans. So my colleague in, in Asian American studies right on this campus, Erin uh, Ying, has written about the damage of the model minority pressures on people, right? The, the, to, a feeling of failure unless you get that A plus or something like that. It's a tremendous pressure, right? As if there's only one criteria for success. It's really problematic and hiding problems that exist within Asian America, like violence, like domestic violence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I understand that the term was coined by Professor William Peterson at Berkeley in 1966. And as you mentioned, Diane was um, featured in the New York Times Magazine at the time. And I think what's so important to, to everything that Diane said is the fact that it really masks some of the income inequality, right, that we have in our communities. And you asked about that. And it really does, you know, it varies, right? Like there are some communities, uh, as Naomi mentioned, that are, you know, who come with quite a bit of wealth when they, and, and that's the only way that they enter, right? So that's what we should be clear about as well is that we have um, certain pathways for certain communities, right? And, and not, so for example, my parents were able to come because of the Immigration Act of 1965, which by the way, was a result of civil rights leaders, thank right? You, thank you, black people. Yes, yeah. exactly. Very important technology. Yes. So because they said, you know, um, our immigration laws are just as racist as our, our voting laws and our, um, you know, public accommodation laws and everything else. So, but then my parents came because they were doctors and that's what was needed, right? We had the great society programs. Mm -hmm. We also had the Cold War. Mm -hmm. So there were scientists and doctors that were needed. Their siblings who were not physicians or scientists couldn't come, right? That doesn't mean that anybody was smarter or not smart. It was like the U.S. wanted this for its capitalist system. And so that's why these people came, right? And so then you basically perpetuate those privileges in the American capitalist system. Um, one thing I wanted to say is, to me also what's important about the model minority framing is that it silences um, that inequality and it silenced, as far as I understood it, um, uh, communities because part of why we were the model, broadly speaking, is because um, Peterson said, oh, look at Japanese Americans. They didn't complain about the incarceration. That's a good minority. A problem minority is African-Americans. And what's going on in 1966? The civil rights movement. So he's actually saying, hey, when you complain about secondary status, that is a problem. 
for America, right? So the message then became for Asian Americans, keep quiet about any inequities and inequalities. Otherwise, you'll be labeled with these folks, mm-hmm. right? So that's kind of the way I think of it, sort of back to the activism piece. I think the question was also, where did it come from? Did it come from Asian Americans? Did it come from the outside? And the answer is both. You know, Asian Americans have been complicit in reproducing this idea. And I think we should all be constantly attentive of how model minority thinking and model minority rhetoric might sneak up at moments when we aren't aware. So as we're doing our activism, as we're doing our teaching, we need to constantly be thinking about the ways we might be um, unintentionally reproducing that stereotype. One thing that I also think can be very wonderful to do is um, to consistently elevate examples of Asian Americans being loud and exactly the opposite of the model minority. I can't tell you how many times people have said, oh, it's not our culture to be outspoken. And I I think that's wrong. (laughs) I say, I think there are lots of amazing historical examples of Asian American activists being um, exactly the opposite of what the model minority says we are. And and learning that history can be very, very empowering. Wow. I think that's, uh, we're right at time. And I think that's such a beautiful note to end on. Um, Thank you so much to all of our panelists for this. um, Thank you all for being here. And we hope to see you again at 5 o'clock for uh, Ms. Carl Connie's uh, lecture, which I think is right here. Yeah. Yeah. Great. All right. Thanks, everyone. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.